Welcome back, everyone, and thank you for joining us for today's podcast from Dublin First Baptist Church in Dublin, North Carolina. We hope you'll be encouraged today as you listen to our message. For more information, please visit our website at www.dublinfbc.org. That's www.dublinfbc.org. Now let's join the congregation of Dublin First Baptist as we listen to the preaching of God's Word. So let's turn to Mark 2, Mark chapter 2, verses 13 to 28 this morning, the straight way. That's that word that Mark uses actually today. It's not in this passage at all. So far, Mark's in 40 different times in the gospel, Mark uses that term straight way. A straight way, of course, means faster immediately, but also Jesus Christ is a straight way. Um, this time, we're going to talk about clearing up confusion in this uh, study of Mark's gospel, the life, the lessons of Jesus Christ. We're going to take a break from the miracles. We've been looking at them a lot lately, and this one is full of miracles, this gospel especially. That's Mark's emphasis. But uh, this time, Mark gives us a rare glimpse of some teaching of Jesus. It's not rare. It's in Matthew. It's in Luke. It's in John. Mark just tends to focus on the miracles more. But here today, he doesn't. So in Mark chapter 2, verses 13 to 28, we're going to find uh, him emphasize Jesus' teaching. Jesus has three different encounters here that we're going to study uh, with, with some people. And so uh, Mark doesn't give us uh, a transcript on the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew does. He gives us the whole thing. Luke uh, gives us sections of it. But um, in Matthew, and actually the Mat- Matthew, you know, the Gospel of Matthew, the one right before this, the guy we're going to study about today, the first encounter is with somebody named Levi. That's Matthew. Uh, just different names, Hebrew name, Roman name for the same fella. Uh, and so uh, we're going to see here, though, Jesus has to clear up some confusion Because religious people of that time, they've been teaching others what Jesus demands from mankind, and here's a problem. A good bit of the time, they had it a little wrong, Um, sometimes completely wrong. They had missed the intent, they had missed the heart of it all and what God had said and commanded, so Jesus here defines God's design, and he clears up the confusion that sometimes religion can cause. Uh, And he reorients us to God's original purpose so that as followers of Jesus Christ, you and I can put God's demands, his purposes, we can put them into practice in our lives. Let's begin reading in verse 13. It says, and he, that's Jesus, and he went forth again by the seaside and all the multitude resorted unto him and he taught them. And as he passed by, He saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the receipt of custom and said unto him, follow me. And he arose and followed him. And it came to pass that as Jesus sat at meat in his house, many publicans and sinners sat also together with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many, and they followed him. And when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eat with publicans and sinners, they said unto his disciples, How is it that he eateth and drinketh with publicans and sinners? When Jesus heard it, he said unto them, They that are whole have no need of a physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And the disciples of John and of the Pharisees, they used to fast. And they come and say unto him, Why do the disciples of John and of the Pharisees fast? But 
Thy disciples fast not. And Jesus said unto them, Can the children of the bride chamber fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken away from them, and then shall they fast in those days. No man also soweth a piece of new cloth on an old garment, else the new piece that filled it up taketh away from the old, and the rent is made worse. And no man putteth new wine into old bottles, else the new wine doth burst the bottles, and the wine is spilled, and the bottles will be marred, but new wine must be put into new bottles. And it came to pass that he went through the cornfields on the Sabbath day, and his disciples began as they went to pluck the ears of corn. And the Pharisees said unto him, Behold, why do they on the Sabbath day that which is not lawful? And Jesus said unto them, Have you never read what David did when he had need and was hungered, he and they that were with him, how he went into the house of God in the days of Abiathar the high priest and did eat the showbread, which is not lawful to eat, but for the priests, and gave also to them that were with him. And he said unto them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man is Lord also of the Sabbath. Let's pray. Lord, as we look into your word this morning, sometimes religion, especially with the teachings of man, can muddy the waters, can cause confusion. I'm so glad that Jesus came to set that straight, to clear up the confusion. Uh, Lord, I pray that if the devil's done that in our lives, if people have done that in our lives, this morning we would leave here totally understanding with clarity your purpose in redemption, your purpose in worship and, and ritual, your, your purpose even in rest here. You've told it to us. I pray that we wouldn't just be informed, but that your Holy Spirit that's present right now in the life of every single believer here would have free reign. There'd be no obstacles. There'd be no distractions so that we'd not just be informed, but we would leave here transformed and then go take that message to a world desperately in need, to a country desperately in need right now. Um, to Christianity, to a church that's desperately in need right now. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. In verses 13 and 7, we see the design of God, what God's intent was in redemption. First of all, the purpose, and we find that purpose at the very end of this section. If you look at verse 17, the very last phrase there, why did Jesus come? Well, he came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. This was Jesus' message it's been for two chapters now. He's devoted to this purpose, calling sinners to repent and believe, to have faith in him and him alone. This is Jesus' message. It's his purpose for everyone. It's his call to everyone. That's what Acts 17.30 says. He calls on all men everywhere to repent and hear that command that all men is a guy named Levi. Look at verse 13. Verse 13 says, and he went forth again by the seaside. Jesus does that. Um, he's having an outdoor worship service there, right, by the Sea of Galilee. It says, a multitude resorted unto him, and there he taught him. That was Jesus' purpose, to teach. A multitude resorted, resorted and taught. Both those verbs in the Greek are in something called an imperfect tense, meaning this isn't just a one-time event. This kept going on every day. People were coming to Jesus. Jesus is teaching and preaching. This is his message, repentant belief. And then in verse 14, it says, and as he passed by, after that service was done, he's walking, and he sees a guy named Levi. All right, he sees Levi, this is again, same as Matthew that wrote, the human author of the gospel, Matthew, just preceding this one. And he sees Levi, 
verse 14, sitting at the receipt of custom. That's fancy King James English for um, he was a tax collector. What do you think they thought of tax collectors in that day? Do you like them now on this day? All right. And that day was even worse um, because, for one, uh, Jewish people didn't like this tax collector because he was employed by the Roman government, which they saw as oppressive. Then on top of that, they, not, they didn't just get a salary from the Roman government, and it's kind of like you're treasonous, traitorous, uh, just in your employment, your, 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 uh, your, your selection of a job. But they'd actually take on top of that whatever they could give. There's no fair tax, you know, no uh, based sales tax. They look at you, look at how you were dressed, find out what you did for a living, find out where you live, and take whatever they can get on top of that from you. Might be a little from this guy, mm, that's wearing nice clothes. Might be a lot from that guy. Now they were hated. That's what people thought of them. Didn't care much for them. Not a profession that people looked at with a high regard. But what about Jesus in verse 14? He sees Levi. What did he think of Levi? What did, uh, how did he view Levi? As somebody in need of redemption. Somebody in need of grace. As somebody... Uh, in need of repentance and faith, and so he offered it to him. He saw Levi just like he sees you and me. We're in that same need. We're no better than Levi. Uh, Needing the redemption of Jesus Christ, and he offered it to him. Jesus says to Levi, follow me, and look at Levi's response. What did he do? End of verse 14, he arose and he followed him. Levi gets up from that treasonous desk that was probably by the road there. He left his life of greed and dishonesty, and he followed him, a life that was imprisoned by greed and a love for money. Jesus invaded with grace, turned his life around. You know, just like those first four disciples, Simon, Peter, and Andrew, Jesus goes by them. They're working in their boat in the net. Jesus says, follow me. What did they do? No hemming or hawing, just like Levi. They got up and followed him. It comes to uh, James and John. He says, follow me, guys. What did they do? No, they got up and they followed him. He called them to repent and believe. He called them to faith and follow Jesus Christ. He called them to new life. And they left all. They followed him. Left a job, left security, left even their family for a period of time. But to be truthful, I think Levi's leaving all to follow Christ was probably a little more sacrificial by human standards than even those four fishermen. You know, they could have and they did. We have it in record in the Gospels. They could have and did. Those four fishermen leave, uh, leave Jesus for time, go back to their boats. They did, time or two. It's recorded in here. What about Levi? I don't think the Roman officials would look too highly on somebody who just deserted his post <laughs> to go follow Jesus. But it didn't matter to Levi. It didn't. Jesus came for Levi Jesus called Levi, and Levi left all he knew to go follow Jesus Christ. He had an abandoned commitment. That sounds like two opposite things, right? He abandoned that life, and he became committed to this life. Um, Dr. Jerry Vines, a longtime Southern Baptist pastor down in Florida, he told the joke, and it's funny, so I got to give him credit because I'm not this funny usually. But uh, he said that there's this pig and a chicken, we like pigs and chickens, right? Uh, there's a pig and a chicken, and they were walking by down the road, and they see a church having a fundraiser, like a, a meal, uh, to raise money for charity. And guess what they were eating? Ham and eggs, right? And, and the, the, the chicken says to the pig, it's a worthy cause. We ought to, we ought to go in and, and donate. 
And the pig looked at the chicken and he said, see, that's the problem. For you, it'd be a contribution. For me, it's total commitment. <laughs> but that's what Levi did. And that's what Jesus asks of us. There's no adding Jesus to your life. That's not Christianity. That could be religion. It's not relationship. It's not saving faith. Saving faith is I'm done with all that and I'm going to Jesus. He's my everything now. I have everything I need in him. We're gonna see that later as well. Uh, in fact, Levi wasn't just satisfied. Like, I found Jesus, I'm going to heaven. Don't have to worry about hell. I got a new life. He wasn't satisfied with that uh, by himself. He invites Jesus to his house for a meal, and then he invites all of his friends. And probably not the most savory of characters, right? It says that in verse uh, 15. And it came to pass that as Jesus sat at meat in his house, many publicans and sinners, many of them, many of them sat also together with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many of them. There's a lot of sinners. We live in a world with a lot of sinners? We do. And praise God, they can turn to Christ. As, but listen to what it says there. He wasn't just happy. I love the end of it. I love it. It says, he invites them to come and meet Jesus so they could repent and believe and follow Jesus. And what happened at the end of verse 15? They did. All those publicans and sinners, all them wicked people, when they came to Jesus, when they met Jesus, they left all and followed him too. That's the purpose of Christ in redemption, to call wicked, needy, evil sinners like me, like you, <laughs> to repent and believe. To, to not try to work our way to God, not try to say, well, I've done this much good and this much bad, so obviously God's going to look out, my, my good outweighs my bad, I hope. I'm going to try to do it that way. That's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's not. The gospel of Jesus Christ is I look at all that and I throw it away and I look at all my sins and I throw them away and I run to Jesus Christ. I look at to what he did, he did for me. That's the gospel. That's repent and believe. I'm done with all that. I'm done with all that. Just what Jesus did for me. That's the gospel. This is Jesus' purpose in redemption. Now, here's where the confusion comes, because this was the practice of the day. Look at verse 16. It says, the scribes and the Pharisees. It could be, and I think it is in the Greek. It's the scribes of the Pharisees. We know who Pharisees are, you know, legalistic, super religious people. These were the top notch of that. They were the scribes of the Pharisees. These guys knew Genesis to, Revel or Genesis to Malachi. All right? They knew the Old Testament. They knew it so good that they even added extra to it, uh, and they're no longer just thinking evil thoughts. That's what they were doing last week. Remember, the guy gets lowered down and Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven you. And they're like, how can you forgive sins? Only God can forgive sins. Yeah, that's right. Um, they're not just thinking evil thoughts like that. Now they're vocal about it. And this is what they say in verse 16. They say to him, how is it that he eats with publicans and sinners? Why would he do that? And the reply of Jesus in verse 17, it clearly tells us God's purpose in redemption, and it helps you and I put it into practice in our own lives and also in the lives of those that we ought to be witnessing and be Jesus came to. In verse 17, when Jesus heard it, he said unto them, they that are whole, those people who are healthy, they don't need a physician, they don't need a doctor, but those that are sick. We live in a world full of sick people. And if you're a Christian, if you've been saved, you were a sick, sick person once. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. That's Jesus' response. And man, there's an important thing right in there. There's a powerful, painful irony that I don't know the Pharisees got and we could kind of miss too. Do you know what Jesus was really telling those Pharisees? There are no righteous. 
There is no whole people. We live in a world where sin, uh, we call it theologically total depravity or total inability. You cannot come to Jesus Christ on your own. You need the word of God. You need the spirit of God. You need the, the gospel in your life. And you need the Holy Spirit to apply it. That's what you need. And there's nobody who's whole. There's nobody who's not sick. Even you Pharisees who think you got it all together and think you're healthy. That's what he was telling them. Because he wanted them to come to faith and repentance as well. But they had to get to a place they were humble enough to recognize how sick they were to recognize their need for Jesus in their life. There is no righteous to humbly repent and receive Christ as Savior as much as all of those wicked, those many, said many wicked people, those many publicans and sinners that Jesus is sitting there eating with. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's to all, it's for everyone, but it is received only when we're humble enough to admit that we're sick, that we have a need for it, I hope you have. If you haven't, whether you're watching tonight or this afternoon, whether you're watching, whether you're here, I hope you have. If you've never done that, do it today. Trust Christ. Leave all your, man, I've done this and I've done that. No, leave it all and just go to Christ. Trust him, what he's done for you. Confess your sins to him. He paid for them on the cross, the penalty of the sin. He, he paid so that he could, you could have power over sin in your life once you receive him as savior. That's the gospel of Christ. If you've received it, are you extending it to others the way Jesus did. Are you putting that into practice? That's God's purpose, to save sinners. Are you putting it into practice to all? Listen, going to the lost, going to sinful people, calling them to repent and believe, it requires care. It requires discernment. Uh, A lot of times people will take this passage and go, see, I ought to go to the bars. That's where the sinful people are. I'm going to go hang out there. I ought to go over here. Wicked people are here. They need Jesus. We need to be careful. Number one, you're not Jesus. (laughs) All right, number two, this is is the biblical part here. Jesus um, was a friend of sinners. He was. We sing a song about that. He went to the sick and the sinful, and we need the two. That's who needs redemption. That's who needs to hear the gospel. But he never let their sin become his. He never let their sin become his. He never endorsed their sin. He never encouraged or enabled their sin. He never left those people in their sin. Now he called them to new life, to repent and believe. And we've got to put God's purpose in redemption, calling people to do that. We've got to put it into practice, but we also need to make sure we listen to and obey the instructions of Psalm 1. You remember that? Blessed. Or how happy is a man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the ungodly? He doesn't stand in the way of sinners. He doesn't sit in the seat of scornful. You don't ever get down there without first walking in the counsel of the ungodly. And then it goes down to now you're standing in the way of sinners. You're starting to act like them, do what they do, value what they value. And eventually you're down here in the seat of the scornful. (laughs) How did you get here? You took a step, and you took a step, and you took a step, and praise the Lord, that even sitting in the seat is not outside of God's grace. But if you never take that first step, you never get there. There's people down there that need the gospel. And Jesus was sitting here with people who at, at least minutes before were scorners, all right? But the thing we have to understand, I really think this is a key, Jesus never walked in their counsel. He never stood in their way or let their actions become his or their values become his. When God sends Jeremiah to a really wicked uh, people of Israel 
in that book in the Old Testament. This is what God tells Jeremiah in Jeremiah 15, 19. You must influence them. Do not let them influence you. (laughs) That's the key. That's God's purpose. That's God's practice in redemption. We ought not get it mixed up. Now let's look at God's design in ritual, verses 18 to 28. Ritual is a word that often has a negative connotation in our world because religion has so confused things, but ritual is not a bad thing. It's actually commanded by God. I mean, a definition from the Oxford Dictionary is just, look, it's a religious practice or a ceremony, an action that we perform according to a prescribed order. Does God command us to do rituals? Well, you're doing one right now. Right? We come together, we corporately assemble for worship, we pray, we uh, read God's word, we do Bible study, we sing this morning, uh, sometimes we fast, and that's the ritual he's talking about here, fasting. Verses 18 to 22, the confusion that Jesus clears up is about that ritual. Verse 18, the disciples of John the Baptist, they hadn't become disciples of Jesus yet, not really sure what the holdup was there. All right, them and the Pharisees, they both come to Jesus with another concern, with a question. They say, how come we fast, but your disciples don't? How come they're not following this ritual that God's commanded? Honestly, to me, it's a little off-putting that these disciples hadn't recognized Jesus yet because John, John was there to point people to Jesus. It's even more off-putting the company that they are currently keeping because they're asking the same question as people who are scorners. Now, is fasting a good thing to do? Did God command people to fast? He did back then for sure. In the Old Testament, three times a year, you had to. God's command, not man's. God's command. You had to fast on the Day of Atonement. You had to fast the day before Purim. And you had to fast uh, when they commemorated the, the fall of Jerusalem. Three times. You had to fast. That was God's command. If you want to worship God, this is what God wants. You have to come and have a day of fasting uh, those three times. Um, it's just... It's a good thing to do. God commanded it. A way to worship God, like singing, like praying, like Bible study, like coming into a corporate worship setting, like giving uh, to someone in need, like an act, an act of mercy. But see, here's the thing. The Pharisees, they always like to build a fence around the law. That's what they called it. We build a fence around the law. God says to do this, but I'm so worried about breaking that, that rule, that regulation, that command of God, I'm going to... Uh, I'm going to add some man-made ones so that you don't even come close. <laughs> you know, and it may sound good. You know, there's no reason to walk that fence line. I mean, you should err on the side of caution. But see, they did it in a wrong way with a, with a wrong heart. So they added two days of fasting every week. <laughs> every week. Jesus said three times a year. They added two days of fasting every week. They did. Not, not God. They did. And what's God's purpose in fasting anyway? It's worship, right? It's humble dependence on God. Is that what's going on here? It don't seem like it to me. It don't. I don't see a lot of humility in their inference in Jesus and his disciples. They're actually, their demand that, you know what, you need to fast and you need to do it our way and according to our schedule. I don't see that humility that's part of worship there. There's two purposes God's word gives us for fasting. Old Testament or now, we're even, I mean, we're called to do it now, sometimes, us as the church. Uh, There's two purposes. One is that I want to know God better and more deeply, and so I'm going to take a day, maybe a few days, and I'm just going to seek God. I'm going to deprive myself of food to, to get into a place where I'm telling God and I'm telling myself by doing this that you are all I need, that you're all I need. 
Also, second reason is we might get to a place where a concern about a loved one or even ourselves in a medical condition or something else, a spiritual condition, somebody who's lost and we really are caring about, we're going to fast because we are trying to, uh, to tell God, look, I'm in a desperate situation. I know there's no help but you. Only you can handle this. And so I'm pleading with you and I'm praying for your presence and for your provision like never before. And Jesus answers their question here. That's why. That's God's purpose in fasting. Right? And it's ritual. That's God's purpose. Verses 19 and 20, Jesus answers their question. And what he says here with this whole bride chamber thing is he's like, when you go to a wedding, it's a time for celebration. That's what's happening here. I'm the groom. These people who are trusting in me, repenting and believing, becoming saved, they're the bride. And it's a happy time because I'm here. I'm here. Now, there's going to come a time when I'll be taken away. When was he taken away? Taken away for three days on that cross. Then he came back. And then what happened? He was taken away again. All right? We have his presence now. And the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ lives in us. Uh, I love that. But it's not the same as when we're going to see him face to face, is it? And that's why we sing songs like that. Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be made what? Sight. When I actually see you forever. Can't wait for that day, can you? Looking forward to it. And so now we find ourselves in the place Jesus is talking about. Look, you don't fast when Jesus is with you in person, in full. That's what he's telling them. That's why we're not fasting now. But it's verse 20. But the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken away from them, and they shall fast in those days. So now is a pretty good time for you and I to fast. Honestly, looking at the condition of our country and all that's going on, now is a pretty good time for you and I to declare to God, we need your help. We do, don't we? We're in a place where we need, we need a work of God here. I can't do it. You can't do it. We can stand up. We can stand for what God's word says, but he's going to have to intervene here. Honestly, that's true about everything. We just forget it sometimes. Your next breath, you're totally dependent on God. My next beat of your heart, you're totally dependent on God. And those are big things, but we consider them small things. We need them for everything. We're that dependent on him. He's saying here, Jesus is saying, look at the sobriety that's typical around fasting. It's not a celebration. <laughs> and that sobriety shouldn't happen when I am here with them. He gives two parables to kind of try to reinforce that. Like, um, first of all, it's just one with the patch, right? Jesus says, look, you guys are still in confusion. You've twisted what is right, fasting, what is appropriate from what I commanded. I told you to do it three times at least. Now you've got them doing it two times a week plus those three times. You've com completely failed to see my intent behind it all. You've totally missed the whole heart of it and the point and the new thing that God is doing now. So let me help clear up some of this confusion. He says, when you got a hole in your pants, what do you do? Well, I, got, I made a lot of holes in my pants when I was a kid, my poor mom, right? And she'd always be ironing on or sewing on patches. Um, but if you have a hole in, in my, my pants that I wear that have been washed and they're, they're shrunk as much as they're going to shrunk, uh, and then you put a new patch on there that hasn't been shrunk, what's going to happen when you throw it in the wash again? You're still going to have a hole. It's just going to be instead of a round hole or a jagged hole, it's going to be an outline hole. Where you sewed it, it's going to shrink up and there's going to be a square outline hole. And this is what Jesus is saying. Look, you cannot tack on Jesus Christ relationship. You can't tack it on to religion. You're going to make a mess of it if you do. That's what y'all are doing. You can't tack on 
Jesus in relationship with God onto your, your confused and corrupted version of Judaism. You can't do it. You can't sow relationship onto religion. You can't sow uh, em- uh, relationship onto empty ritual. Then he goes to the same type of thing here in this wineskin. Uh, when wine is new, uh, it expands as it ferments. And he's saying, if you put that in an old container that has a limit to it, what's going to happen? It's going to break the container. All the wine is going to go down on the ground. Uh, and you're going to have a destroyed container. And then you're also going to lose all the new. Saying the same thing here, same principle. You're missing the new thing that God is doing. Um, and I don't know how well the Pharisees welcomed Jesus' inference that they were old, hard, crusty wineskins. But that's what he's saying. That's what he's saying. Ritual is not bad. And this one, this one that God's commanded us to practice willingly, not on somebody else's schedule, on his. Willingly and privately, not, I mean, that's what Jesus said. You're not supposed to go around telling everybody you're fasting. It's supposed to be something you do privately to honor God. Um, It's appropriate at appropriate times. Here's the, the big thing. It was to be a source of blessing. That's why God commands everything. He wants it to bless us. And what do... What does religion do? It takes this gift of God, it takes this blessing from God, and it turns it into a burden. That's what it had become to those people. Three gifts I'm giving you a year to just devote yourself to God. And now these guys had built a fence around the law and said, no, every Tuesday and every Thursday you need to do it in addition to those three times. And he makes it a burden to them. That's what religion does. Takes a blessing from God, makes it a burden, turns it into a burden. That's what religion does. It's not what relationship does. One more lesson from Jesus this morning, verses 23 to 28. Same kind of um, confusion, but a different context. Now about the Sabbath. And like the Sabbath, the purpose, uh, or like, um, like this ritual of fasting, the, the Sabbath, honoring the Sabbath, devoting a day to the Lord. That's why we call it the Lord's Day. I know we're doing it on Sunday, not Saturday. Um, Jesus resurrected on Sunday. That's why we do it. Just you coming here on Sunday is you celebrating the resurrection. Uh, and it is a gift from God, though, uh, for us. And you might say, well, I thought it was for rest. Well, it totally is. God gave us this day for us to come together and worship God this morning and and honestly throughout the rest of the day have our minds set on God. We should have them set every day, but definitely this is a special day that we're to do it. Um, It's for rest and restoration, listen to me, because we need it. God don't need it. God doesn't need this day. We don't come here because God needs it. Now he gives life to everything. He's not served with human hands. All right, he, he doesn't need us. We, we need this day. And here's why, because we're dependent on him for every single thing. And here's what happens when we don't receive this gift of God. So this is the purpose of it. He says in verse 27, he said unto them, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, he's Lord also of the Sabbath. Here's, um, here's what happens when I do not receive the gift of the Sabbath. I don't honor it. Um, in a way that is appropriate. I'm not, I'm not taking a day of rest and restoration and, and giving it to God. Here is what we're really doing when I reject that gift from God, when I uh, don't participate in what he has provided and purposed for me. I'm telling God this. Thanks, but I don't, I don't need it. I don't need a day of rest, God. I don't. Um, 
I don't need a day devoted to worship. I can eke out following Jesus on my own. Don't need to be in church with his people. I can eke out my existence on my own, but I appreciate the offer, God. Thanks for thinking of me. Now you'd be like, I would never say such a thing. That's insanely arrogant. Who would ever say that? But honestly, it's really what we communicate to God and to others when I reject what he's given to us in what I would call a beautiful pause. It's a beautiful pause he wants you to have in your life. Now, you might not be able to do it on Sunday. You might be a nurse who's got to work on Sunday. You might be a doctor, a policeman, but you need to take a beautiful pause. You need to somehow implement in your life a day that you can just stop and exhale because this is what you do say. This is what you do. That's the negative part, right? This is what you do say when you receive that gift and you do that and you take a day and you devote it to God. This is what you say to God and to others. You say, I'm not my job. I am not my job. My worth is not in my ability to harness wealth and and even provide for my family, give them all the best stuff. No, my worth is in Jesus Christ alone. My life, it's about Jesus Christ alone. My needs are met by Jesus Christ alone. Who gets glorified in that? Jesus Christ alone. That's why we need a Sabbath. It's a gift to God from us, but it it has powerful communication, church. It does. So here are the Pharisees. They come to Jesus, and they come to his disciples again, and look what they're saying now here, verses 23 and 24. So it says that his disciples and Jesus, they're walking through a cornfield, not corn like we think, right? It's just King James' word for wheat. Um, They didn't have corn over there. So they're picking up some wheat heads, and they're eating them. I don't know. Like a, like a paleo diet or something. Can't imagine me too good, raw wheat heads. But they need a snack and they're picking them up like sunflower seeds y'all do in baseball or something. And they're eating them. And his, the Pharisees come and they're like, what are they doing? <laughs> Why are they working on the Sabbath day? They called that work, right? And so let's, that's their confused practice here. Let's look at the practice. Again, they're building a fence around God's law. They're veiling God's intent. They're stealing every bit of joy that they can from this gift of the Sabbath God gave. They're confused about the purpose. Do you know how bad they are confused about the purpose? They had 39 different regulations about God's one. God says, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Keep it devoted to me. Make it special for me. And they said, okay, that's important. So let's build 39 different regulations around that so that we never would never transgress it. That's what they did. Man uh, invented human-enforced rules about a command from God that's really a gift to us. 39 different restrictions based on their, their interpretation of God's word. You want to hear what one of them is? Okay, let me give you a couple examples. You can spit on a rock on the Sabbath, but you can't spit on the ground. You know why? Because if by chance you spit on the ground and there was a seed under there that was in the process of germination and your saliva helped that bugger to sprout, you've just done work. You're a farmer. You're a gardener. That's what they thought. This is real. You've done work. It's crazy. That's what happens when you throw religion on a relationship. When you add human-invented religion, human legalistic-invented rules Strip it of joy. Here's another one. You cannot carry a whole orange in your pocket because you're working. You're, you're bearing a burden. A half an orange? Not work. Not work. You can do that just fine. Not a whole orange. Do you see what happens when we tack religion onto relationship? 
<laughs> we make a mess and we cause confusion. We don't honor God. We strip God's gifts of commands to us of any joy. Do you see what happens um, when we take God's rules that are a gift to us and we put man-made rules on them? They then become a grief to us. They were right about that. The whole orange thing, it's a burden. What they did was a, causing a burden for people to bear. That's what, literally what Jesus said. They twisted God's design. They stripped it of joy for which he had created it. So Jesus ups the ante in his response. He's like, okay, you want to you wanna talk about it? Let's do that. You guys are experts in the law. You know everything about the Old Testament. So surely... Verse 25, surely you've read what David did when he had need. He was hungry, running from Saul, and, um, and they that were with him, his little band of ragtag soldiers, they didn't have any food. So what did they do? They go to the tabernacle. They go to the high priest. They said, do you have any food? And the high priest says, I got the showbread, but you're not supposed to have it. It's really dedicated to the priest. That's what God's word says. And David says, give it to me. Let me have it. What do you think God thought? Does God want them to die of starvation? I mean, it was that level. It wasn't like they were just hungry and needed a snack. Hadn't eaten for days, running from Saul, Saul trying to kill him. And David does this. They approved of it. They, these Pharisees are like, hmm, you got us. Because surely they won't say anything bad about David. I mean, for us, the closest comparison I can try to make it is like, we, we're in a bad place. Nobody can get food. IGA, food lines all out. We're starving. And you go in there and you take communion because you want to stay alive. You want to keep your family alive. You take the bread we, we keep in there for our quarterly communion services. I mean, it probably makes some of you uncomfortable. It does me too. That's dedicated for something special. What is God more concerned about? Somebody staying alive or somebody obeying laws down to the detail, but missing the whole intent of it, missing God's heart and missing the whole purpose. Listen, the Sabbath this is what Jesus says. He gives a second reinforcement of the truth in verse 27. He says, the Sabbath was made for you. You, uh, you were not made for the Sabbath. You're not giving me anything. I'm giving you this. And on Sunday, what we celebrate the Sabbath, this is my gift to you. You are. You're a gift. I look forward to this every week. I look forward to fellowshipping with you on Sunday, on Wednesday. It's a gift to me. Don't let it become a burden. That's where religion creeps in when this becomes a burden. It's a gift of God to us. We've got to get this straight. Please get this straight. Never forget this. This is not our gift to God because he doesn't need gifts. No, he's the giver. We're the receiver. He's the benefactor. We're the beneficiary. If we don't get that, listen to me, it's so much bad theology comes when we mix those up. When we think we are giving God something. When we think we're putting God in debt to us. No, we're forever indebted to him. We are. Taking one rule given by God, twisting it into 39, that's religion. But practicing, even embracing this gift of God and dependent joy and faith, this gift of rest, that's relationship. And then finally, Jesus says, look, if you have any other questions, guess who created the Sabbath? Verse 28, I did. On that seventh day, after I said, let there be, let there be, let there be, one through six, I said, you need a Sabbath day. Jesus He's the one who did it. So I think he can make exceptions. <laughs> he can make exceptions to these man-made rules about oranges and spitting on the ground. He can make picking little kernels of wheat. 
He can make those exceptions. Look, I want to have a time of invitation. God has a design in redemption. It's to call needy sinners to repent and believe to faith. If there's someone watching, someone that's here, and you've never done that, you never trusted as Christ as Savior, I pray that during our time of invitation, uh, you'll come and, and receive Christ. If you have any questions about that, we have it on the back of our bulletin, also on our website, what it means to be saved, how you can know for sure um, that you are God's and that you've trusted Christ as Savior. You've been born again. Christians, that's who I'm guessing I'm talking to, mostly people who have already done that this morning. Can I ask you this? Are you more like Jesus or are you more like the Pharisees in your purpose and practice of sharing Christ with others? Are you sharing them with all or are you very selective about who you deem is worthy to repent and believe? Let's make sure that we're like Jesus in our purpose and our practice. What about ritual? God has a design in ritual. It's not a bad thing. But have you gotten to the place where even coming here this morning, I'm glad you're here. And if you came out of duty, I'm really glad you're here. But I hope you leave because of delight. I hope that's transformed here this morning. Like you came because, well, this is what we do on Sunday. But now you're like, no, I'm so glad I went on Sunday. Because I, God, that's, that's the biggest thing we've got to grab a hold of. Ritual, empty ritual, religion. <laughs> That's not good. Relationship is what God wants. Whether it's in here in church or fasting or daily time with God or prayer, all of these things, all of these rituals that God's commanded, listen to me, they have to be, they have to be a declaration to God that I'm dependent on you. A declaration of dependence to God. That is worshipful. It can't just be a demonstration of discipline. That's pharisaical. That's just religion. Relationship is, is, I'm declaring my dependence on you. I totally need you. I cannot breathe. My heart cannot beat. I cannot serve. I cannot work. I cannot be a husband. I cannot be a wife. I cannot be a father or mother without you. I'm dependent on you. And finally, God's got a design and rest. It's the same as ritual. It's just dependence. What are you telling yourself, your God, your family? What are you telling other people about our Sabbath day? or your Sabbath day, depending on your work schedule. What are you telling people? Are you telling them God meets my every need? Jesus Christ is everything I need. I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. Or are you telling them, oh, I've got to do this, and I've got to do that, and I've got to do this. And that's where my faith is. Look, can I just ask you to rest? Just stop. <laughs> Exhale this morning. <sighs> Thank God for his gift. All right, we're going to sing a song, an invitation, however God's asking you to.